So a, a couple of things real quick. Uh, first of all, thanks to everyone, to Mary Ellen, and thank you to Ava Nell for the coffee and the setup in the back, and thanks to all the AV community crew. Those guys do a great job getting this place set up. It's amazing what kind of work they do. Every morning they set it up. Every more after, right afterwards they take it back down. It's pretty incredible what happens here every Sunday morning. Uh, also to, uh, to Marty in the back, we're glad to have you back. Marty's father passed away this last month, this, a month ago, and so he's been with his family there. Um, and so we're glad to have you back and helping out as well. There's so many different people, the band, Brad, the band, everybody that's involved in the music, uh, Kagan, who's not with us this morning. There's a lot of people that are really a part of all of this. Our leadership team, which you all haven't all met yet, but uh, we're calling them Team 1111, and uh, you'll get to meet them in the near future as things continue to, uh, to progress in our, in our community and um, in the coming months and years. Um, also... Jim Miller came up to me right before the serve, right before we got up here. And Jim, your mother is celebrating her 100th birthday this week. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I sure hope I live that long. <laughs> that's amazing. That's wonderful. Congratulations to her and tell her we were thinking of her this morning and celebrating her. Um, so I, just a real quick thing. We're talking about disrupting illusions. So this story, this story from the book of Acts, we always kind of think of it as a story of sort of like just another of the kind of miracle stories maybe or one of those 2,000-year-old stories that we can't really get connected to. We can't really feel. What's that have to do with today? Uh, the Gentiles, well, we're part of the Gentiles. As, as, a, as a whole, for the most part, there may be a few uh, folks with Jewish heritage in our community. But, uh, but so we sort of connect with it that way. Something else is happening here that I think we forget. And that is that Peter has just disrupted his community's reality. He literally disrupted their reality. Because as far as they were concerned, Gentiles don't belong. They just don't belong. We got our physical way of proving it. We got our religious way of proving it. Jesus came to us, didn't go to them. And so why are they included? So Peter literally in this story disrupts their collective illusion. But the reason why it's collective illusion is important. I'll get to that in a minute. First, I want to give you a fun story about a disruption that I read about not too long ago. Seems like these high school student, students, towards the end of the year, I don't know if you guys ever did this when you were seniors in your high school. We always did some pranks at Arlington Heights here in town. We did a few pranks for the, for the principal to enjoy upon our departure. Um, so these high school students, they were out in a rural community, and they found three goats, and they numbered them one two, and four, and they set them loose on the campus. And the rest of that day, until the school was finally shut down midday, everybody was looking for number three. <laughs> I don't know that they ever found, the story doesn't say that they ever found out that there was never a number three. It was just one, two, and four. But how fun and how, how interesting when we assume something, right? We just assume something, and so we go following the natural way of our logic, of our assumptions, I like that story. So we got a couple of optical illusions here. First of all, this one, of course, which is, this is not a pipe in French. But um, the next one, I love these next ones here. I believe the next one is the old woman and the young woman. You remember this one? You've seen this one before, but she's at a bar. I love this one because it's like, so can you show me your ID? Well, wait, I don't guess you need to. Well, wait, yeah, I think you do need to. Well, well wait a minute. I love this image. How many of you can see it go back and forth from the young woman to the old woman to the young woman to the old woman? Right? That's a trick. It's hard. 
It's easy for us to get stuck in only one way of seeing things. The next one is also a favorite one of mine. That one, this one actually did bother me for a while. I literally couldn't get my head around this one. I just kept, I was like, no, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> okay, and then, of course, this, la this last one again of the pipe. I believe we come back to, is this the next one, the pipe again? Yes. So, actually, um, Rene Magritte called this one the treachery of images. We just, it just says this is not a pipe, but he called it, he titled the piece, The Treachery of Images. What an interesting idea for an artist. Because we often think of art as representational, but oftentimes art is actually disruption. It's disruptive. Its intention is to challenge how we see things, to play with our, our perception, to help us see. You remember Picasso, the famous story where he had done this crazy abstract uh, version of his wife's portrait? And the man came to him and said, this doesn't look like my wife at all. And the guy showed him a portrait and said, this is, I mean, a, a picture, a photograph said, this is my wife. And Picasso's response was, well, she's very flat and one-dimensional. <laughs> right? I mean, it takes sometimes an artist or someone with an imagination to realize that the picture, the image, the thing, the perception, the idea is so much bigger than our perception and assumption. And this is where we get into trouble. I mean, sure, it's a pipe. I know the logical, dualistic kinds of folks out there are going like, it is a pipe after all. You can say it's not a pipe, but it is a pipe. But that's the problem sometimes that we face, is that when we do finally label something, we don't see it for anything else. When we finally label someone as excluded or not, being, not worthy, we can't see it as anything else. When we label someone as being evil, because of what they do, we can't see them as anything else. That's the challenge for us, I think, as, as people who are, uh, we, might call them, we might call ourselves followers of the anointed or of the community of the anointed. We might call ourselves Christian. We might call ourselves Jesus followers. We might call ourselves people on the path of the way that we don't understand. Whatever, we are on this path of trying to be about seeing a bigger possibility. That's what I think we're about here in 11.11. So collective illusions. So there was this great book that was written just about uh, two months ago, written by a social psychologist who's a social scientist who got his uh, training and, and worked for a long time with the Harvard University. And he wrote a book that's called um, Collective Illusion, Conformity, Complicity, and the Science of Why We Make Bad Decisions. Now... I listened to a podcast this week with this book, and then I went and I got a summary of the book. I haven't read the whole book. You need to look it up and find out some information and just look at some of the, of the reviews and the conversations here because it's really fascinating what he does. Uh, Tom uh, uh, Rose, who's the author of this book, what he did was he suspected that people don't really know what they think they know. He suspected that people believe certain things about certain other people or about their own tribe and they operate out of that assumption. Republicans are bad. Democrats are bad. Democrats are bleeding heart liberals. Republicans are narrow-minded. I mean, you see what I'm saying? We live out of assumptions about how certain people are or who they are. Someone sent me a great bumper sticker on the back, I mean, a great picture of a pickup truck, and on the back of the pickup truck were all these bumper stickers, you know. Um, um, uh, what was it? Uh, I'm going to forget it, but basically it was anti-vaxxing on one bumper sticker, and it was another bumper sticker that was conspiracy theory stuff, and it was all these sort of, of what we would normally label, some of us, as 
being sort of those people, right? We might do that, those people, those crazy, whatever. We might do. Then on the bottom bumper sticker, it said, behold and something, not exactly, but it was like this, enjoy and behold the fiery beauty of life. What? No, 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 no. You're not allowed to enjoy the beauty of life. You're not allowed to be immersed in the wonder and mystery of it all. No, 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 no. You're supposed to be over there in a closed box, in a bottle, in a, in a, in a cage where exactly you live and you create all that havoc that I am not comfortable with. You can't enjoy the same things I enjoy. You can't be overwhelmed by the mystery of life. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And, and it was interesting because the first responses would be what you would think, right? The first responses from the group were things like, you know, look, what a jerk, or there's more, more negativity out in the world, or look at that, you know, kind of crazy. There were all of the assumptive kinds of things we do when we see what we think we're seeing. And then someone said, odd that they had that bumper sticker at the bottom of the truck in the back. Nobody saw it until we went back and looked again. Collective illusions are basically, this is the definition, you can pull it up there, I believe, on the screen. Collective illusions, a situation where the majority of a group goes along with something they individually probably don't agree with. That's important. But simply because they incorrectly believe that most of the others in their group or their tribe do agree with it. That's a collective illusion. We assume everyone thinks this about that other group of people. We know that, and so we think that way. But talk to me in private, I probably have a much more nuanced perspective of things. In fact, talk to me in private, I may even find, you might even find out that after we talked a little while, I don't have near as strict or as hardcore a perception as they do, or a response. But I'm going to act that way because I think they do. Now, you know what, the what they found was, is that when they researched everybody as a group, when they talked about the group, everybody, 75, 85% held to that belief. When they talked to them individually, only 14% actually held to that belief. This was among Republicans. You need to go read this book. It's fascinating. It begins to overturn all of the assumptions we have about one another, about our own group, not just those with whom we feel like we're completely opposed to and we just label each other, but even our own group, we don't understand who we are or what we think. The challenge is, is how do we begin to disrupt these collective illusions. What motivates somebody to hate somebody enough that they would walk into a grocery store and shoot and kill 10 or more people? What, what motivates somebody to do that? Their pure evil? Their pure uh, um, unbiased and pure hatred of someone else? No. It's cultural. It's contextual. In fact, if you could end up in a conversation with someone long enough, as we know that different individuals have done with the KKK, and I can't remember the guy's name, the black guy who is the blues musician. What's that? Daryl, yes, thank you. Uh, that that has, It's a blues musician out of Louisiana, went around all these different blues clubs and started talking to KKK members. And over time, developed a huge 
community of friends among KKK members who eventually, a lot of them, basically disowned or, or disconnected with their ties with KKK. But it took conversation. It took connection to begin to realize that the assume, assumed illusions were just assumed. They weren't really there. It's just everybody's assuming everybody else in their tribe ascribes to the same hardcore realities, and so we'd rather belong. And it's very unconscious. It's very subconscious and unconscious how we participate in this. The challenge for us people, this is why I say this is our challenge, is to be about planting three goats but saying there's four. It's about telling the story in a different way so that people start to hear you say, oh, no, 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 they're included too. Oh, yeah, they belong too. No, 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 they don't. Everybody else says, no, 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 they don't. They don't look anything like us. They don't act like us. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not uh, um, ritualized the same way, for lack of a better world, that we are. Uh, no, no, they don't belong. No, you retell the story because we are disrupting the collective illusions. It's not an either-or. It's not a zero-sum, bad and good. It's more of this reality we all swim in, if you like, <laughs> that we're all a part of. Uh, Neil Donald Walsh, I think that's this next quote. I know this is one of your favorite folks, uh, Todd. <laughs> and uh, he has this wonderful quote, life begins at the end of our comfort zone. Isn't that interesting? It begins at the end of our comfort zone. Not where you find discomfort. You think that's where discomfort is. The minute you start to open up the possibilities in that discomforting place, you start realizing, oh, this is life. This really is where life happens, where things change, where people's lives change. I love this image. I have this on my wallet, but I found it as a poster. This next one. Let's see if you can read this. Yeah, dear Buddha, I would love to have your peace, your wisdom, your serenity, your divine nature, but most of all, I would like to have your acorn hat. <laughs> so this is what gets in the way of our equanimity. I'm going to define that in just a second, but this is what gets in the way of our equanimity. Oh, go back up here. I did define it. I just forgot to show it here. Equanimity is this experience of even-keeled, of calm, even-tempered, balanced emotionally. It's the practice of viewing all the parent phenomenon as kind of dreamlike, illusory, or impermanent. A lot of times when I've talked to people and they've told me about this idea of... of um, of, 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 of equanimity, it's almost sounded like indifference. Everything's the same, everything's okay, it's just all that it is, it's all right, the way things are. Like my, my cousin, years and years and years ago, who'd been involved with this group called Est, and she came up to my, to my wife Linda and I years and years ago, and she said, you know there's no hunger in the world. We're like, no, there is hunger in the world. She says, no, it's a matter of how you see things. There is no hunger, she would say, it's equanimity. And I didn't know how to hold on to that at first because for me, her understanding of Buddhism and Zen, if that's what it was, then it was wrong because I understood that life was about being compassionate and engaging in justice and equity. And yes, there is hunger in the world. But she would say, no, there's no hunger. It's just you have to get to this place of equanimity. Well, she misunderstood equanimity like a lot of us do because equanimity is not indifference. Equanimity is recognizing that we are a part of a mystery that is less about making assumptions and more about being a part of the mystery, about participating in it with kindness, with justice, with compassion.
But when we can't get there because we're saying, oh my God, there's more evil people in the world. Oh my God, there's, there's not enough of these people like me. Oh my God, this, this is happening and this is happening. We are trapped like the squirrel in wanting the acorn rather than the peace. So we can't act towards peace because we're still attached towards the things we think have to happen. You see what I'm saying? That place of equanimity is a place of ongoing practice of trying to remember that we are a part of a larger story and it's not about us, but it is about our compassion. It's not about what we get and what we find is enjoyable and pleasurable, but it is about how we participate at the edge of what's uncomfortable. And we begin to disrupt this illusion that it has to be this or that. We begin to show people who in fact are hateful, who are angry, that there is in fact a place of calm, a place of joy, a place of connection that they don't see but we know is there. That's equanimity. It's being able to hold all of that in a kind of balance. And it's a conundrum. Do you remember that old hee-haw? Linda said, you're not going to talk about hee-haw, are you? I said, I'm sure there's people that watch Hee Haw in our group, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so you remember that old episode where, where and, I, and I think it was um, Roy Clark who would come out and he would tell the story about this is bad, this is good, and he would say this happened, and they'd say, oh, that's bad, and then he'd say, oh, no, no, that was good. And then, and then they'd say, oh, but, but that was good. No, 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 it turned out that was bad, and it would just go back and forth. This was bad, this was good, this was bad, and then at some point, it would have kind of a punchline at the end. And the idea was is that you sort of realized that life was both bad and good. But it didn't quite come out that way because it was still oriented around trying to have a funny joke out of it. When in reality, life's not always that funny. But life is, in fact, amazing. How do we live in the midst of that reality that things are bad and things are good? We live there by purposefully, intentionally trying to live out of a place of compassion and allowing the rest of it to simply just be. To realize that the story is bigger than us, but we get to be a part of this mystery. To realize that, in fact, like Peter was doing, we can tell this story in a better way. Yes, what happened in New York, horrible, tragic, and we need to deal with these kinds of things that allow these things to happen, sure. And yet, is there something else in this narrative that we don't know that's bigger than us? You know, the, the uh, scientists recently posted this image. Let's see if we can get ahead to this image. Of uh, We'll get on past no, mo, no Mud, No Lotus. Let's see the next image. I'm trying to get to the um, black hole. Yeah. There we go. Y'all see this image? Isn't this amazing? They've discovered that black hole at the center of our own galaxy. They finally kind of got a picture of it. It's taken all these years to work collaboratively with telescopes, collaboratively with telescopes all around the globe to find this image of the black hole. We still don't know what's at the center of the black hole, of what goes on so much there, but now we see these stars spinning around, and it's only 26,000 light years away, which is not very far, apparently. <laughs> but we didn't know it was there, and why did we not know it, there? it was there, right? Why did we not see it? Why could we not see it clearly? It was because we're looking at it from the side. We were seeing it through the cloud, this cosmic dust that's a part of the Milky Way. We couldn't see it clearly. We still can't see it very clearly, apparently. But we know that it's there. There's so much in the world around us that we don't understand, and yet we act as if we do. We've defined who is right and who is wrong, 
And so we find it hard to live with the others because we've already labeled that. We already live by this collective illusion that we know everybody else agrees with us. Those folks are wrong. And yet we're missing something here. So there was a businessman who um, was, was moving and he was changing his job site. And he was moving to a brand new site. He was so excited about it because it was upping his, his whole game, his whole level of business. And someone sent him a bouquet of flowers and it came with a card. And we read it for some of his friends. It took him aback because it said, just wanted to know we give you our condolences and, and are sorry for your loss. And he called up the flower company, the delivery company. He says, what the, what's the matter with this? This is, I wasn't supposed to get this. I just moved. I couldn't be more excited. And now you send me this funeral arrangement with this notice, we're sorry for your loss. And the guy on the other side said, yeah, but just think about it for a second. Somewhere someone's at a funeral. And they opened up the card with their bouquet that says, congratulations on your new location. Just kind of reframing things, right? Just taking a chance to see something. No mud, no lotus is what we saw there that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh had said. Or the way that Rumi said it was that sometimes we have to remember this life is a guest house. We're just here. We're just inhabiting this life. And oftentimes things come in that are mean, that are frightening, that are scary. Sometimes joy. Sometimes delight and astonishment. But all of it. Welcome it in as friend. Or the way that Carl Jung, the psychologist, would say is that when we don't look at the things that we're afraid of, we're apt to act them out in different kinds of ways. When we don't look at them, we're apt to act out of that fear, whether we make um, limited judgments or, or, or um, exclusive kinds of judgments, or whether we simply fail to see the bigger picture. So I want to end with this last quote here and a closing story. Um, this last quote is by, is by um, Ilya, uh, Delio, Ilya Delio, and he's a physicist and a theologian, and I've got a couple of his different books. Um, he says, to follow Jesus is to be a whole maker. I like that idea, to be a whole maker. Not H-O-L-E, wholeness. To be a whole maker, essentially to love the world into being into being and into finding life. Some of you know the filmmaker and the author, Valerie Kerr. She's a Sikh, a woman, Sikh woman, married with, with one or two children. She graduated from Harvard Law School. She graduated from Stanford School of Theology. She started an organization called um, the, Revolutionary, uh, the um, Organization for Revolutionary Love. And, and it was based on what happened shortly after 9-11. Shortly after 9-11, she was about 30 years old, and her uncle, or at least was a good friend of the family, who was, they called him her uncle, they referred to him often as uncle. He was the first Sikh man, the first non-white person to be shot and killed after 9-11, because of 9-11. He was a Sikh man that was killed in Mesa, Arizona. And the man who killed him had said the reason why he was going to, uh, Frank Roque, he said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start shooting some towel heads. This was Valerie's uncle, good friend of theirs. He was shot dead. So Frank was arrested. He was put in jail. He had been sentenced to death. That sentence was later commuted to life. At that point, somewhere around there, Valerie began to research hatred. She began to explore 
the Sikh concept of love, which was very much like the Christian concept of love, which is very much like the Jewish concept of love, very much like every religious tradition in the world, which basically says, love your neighbor as you would want your neighbor to love you. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. The golden rule. And she began to explore this and why things happen like this. So she founded this organization, but in the process, she and the man's brother, the man who was killed, his brother, they got involved together in this organization, and they went to visit Frank Roque at the prison. She did a TED talk on this, it's amazing, and she said, we talked to him not because we wanted an apology, but because we wanted to understand who he was, what his story was, and how he could do what he could do. And at first, she said, he was apologetic, but in a passive, kind of contrived way. I, I shouldn't have shot him, I know. But then he said, those people shouldn't have attacked our, the Twin Towers. So he kind of equivocated. They didn't leave it there. They went back and they visited again. Then they called him. And over time, as they visited him, they discovered something about his story, about his own pain. And in the process, he discovered something about himself that he had assumed was not there simply because he was angry. He'd never experienced this idea that the story's bigger. And after a number of conversations, he actually asked the brother if he would forgive him. And the brother said, of course, yes, already. But then he said, when I get to heaven, Frank said, if I can get to heaven, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask for your brother. I'm going to ask for your brother's apology as well. And the man looked back at Frank and said, you don't understand. You've already been forgiven for that. That happened a long time ago. He wasn't speaking as a Christian. He wasn't speaking as a Jew. He was speaking as a person who realizes that at the heart of all of our lives is this force of love which offers an opportunity to disrupt the narratives that are out there. But the only way to do that is to begin to hold what's difficult in place rather than define it rather than label it. The only way to disrupt the optical illusion is to realize the story's bigger and I'm just gonna have to hold this difficulty in place. Whether it's a pain I'm experiencing, whether it's a diagnosis I recently received, whether it's my car shut down on the highway, everything has a larger story than what's happening. And what Peter was saying to, the, to those others, you don't realize the story's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. I saw it in a dream. Amen.